Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. I'm Artemis, and in our first episode of the new year, we're travelling back exactly a hundred years ago. If you're a regular listener, you know that we spend quite a lot of time on the podcast thinking about the significance of particular years. Elsewhere, people approach history by grouping together a series of events that maybe took place over a number of years. But on the podcast, we like to deep dive into a particular moment or an intriguing vignette and see what it can teach us about the spirit of the time. That's exactly what my guest today, Nick Renison, has done in his new book, 1922, Scenes from a Turbulent Year, in which he works his way through this extraordinary year in world history, month by month. Whether it's sat around the table with James Joyce on the evening of the publication of Ulysses, or in the courtroom where Mahatma Gandhi was being tried for sedition. But to find out what three particular scenes from 1922 Nick wanted to travel through time to, I spoke to him over the weekend. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you on for our first episode of 2022. My pleasure to be here. So you make the argument in your book 1922, which was 100 years ago this year, this, the events of this year were unusually significant in, in shaping the world we live in today. When did you first realise this and, and why did you want to write this book? Well, why pick 1922? Yeah, well, I thought originally it would be interesting to look at a particular year from the perspective of 100 years later and in one instance to see what parallels there were with the present and also to note the ways in which the past was, as L.P. Hartley famously said, the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. And it's easy when you start looking back at 1922 to see parallels. I mean, the biggest, of course, is that in 1922, people were emerging from a global pandemic in the same way as we hope we are. They were emerging from the flu epidemic which had lasted from the final year of the First World War for several years afterwards, you know, until 1922, when there were hopes that it was coming, finally coming to an end. And unlike us, they had no vaccines. And as many as 50 million people, in some estimates, worldwide had died. So there are definite parallels with 1922. Uh, and uh, our present day, but there also were a lot of ways in which things were very different and you see things, or I saw things as I was doing my research, which made me think, my goodness, the past really is a foreign country. Um, But also, I mean, I, I wanted to do for 1922. Originally, I wanted to do 1922 or look at 1922 because I was interested in the literary history and that it was a year of kind of peak modernism in in English literature. And then I moved on to look at the wider 
aspects of it. And I just came to the conclusion that it was a very pivotal year in 20th century history. And the map of the world altered in 1922. Empires came to an end. The Ottoman Empire, which had lasted 600 years, came to an end when its last sultan was forced into exile. New nations arose, which were going to shape the future of the 20th century. The USSR was officially founded by a treaty signed at the very end of 1922. New regimes with ominous signs for the future came into power. Mussolini was appointed prime minister of Italy. The first fascist state came into being. New mass media were gaining influence. The cinema, the radio, BBC was created in October. And in all the arts, traditional forms were proving inadequate and writers, musicians and painters were seeking different means of expressing themselves. It, it, the more I researched, the more I realised that it was a year of great ferment and turbulence, and I found that interesting. And I thought through a series of brief pieces arranged by month, you might be able to give us some sense of what the world was like to live in 100 years ago. Mm. And I, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a bit about how you've arranged it, um, like you say, month by month, because it really reminded me of um, almost like a kind of annal, like, you know, these medieval, I had to look, I had to study them when I was at university, um, these medieval annals of like um, events that all of the significant events of a year. What was, what, why did you want to organise the book in that way rather than say thematically? Well, originally, I, I wasn't going to do it month by month. Originally, I was intending to do it thematically and uh, link together things that happened at different times of the year by theme. But as I worked on it, I just found it more and more likely that the best way of organising the material I had was to do it in the way I did it, which is each month has a series of vignettes, which, um, you know, hopefully give some sense of, of uh, as I say, what uh, what it was like to be around in 1922 and the news that was happening and the events, social, political, cultural, that were, were happening. And also I read uh, a terrific book by uh, Kevin Jackson called Constellation of Genius, which is specifically about the arts of 1922. And that was arranged... Um, I mean, almost day to day, actually. It's, it goes through from January the 1st to December the 31st. And I just thought that that worked so well. That, and, and I was struggling to find a way to make it make sense thematically. So I altered my approach and, and decided that I would do it by month. And hopefully it, it worked out well. Oh, you've spoken a bit about the comparisons that could be made between 1922 and 2000 or 2022. Um, and I was wondering if while you were researching for the book, were there any kind of lessons that emerged um, where you thought that, that that's something that could be useful for us to know and, and how we deal with our problems today? It does. There are parallels in a way. And it may be that just as the 1920s was the roaring 20s and the you know, the jazz age and what have you, then maybe the 2020s will equally play out in, in that kind of a way that people will be seeking entertainment and it will be a rather lively decade. But 
I mean, it was such a different time. They didn't have vaccines and they didn't have the medical advances that we have today. And therefore, events played out in a very different way. Well, um, without further ado, let's let's go there. So, Nick, if you could travel back in time, what year would you travel to? Well, funnily enough, I think I would travel back to 1922 just to see the events that I've described played out in uh, in reality, as it were. Mm, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, not not surprising. But let's let's go. <laughs> so, where would you like to visit first? What's our first scene? Well, the first scene is the Valley of the Kings in Egypt uh, at, towards the end of November in 1922. Uh, at the beginning of the year the name of the ancient Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun would have been known to a handful of scholars and students of Egyptology. By the end of the year, it was familiar to thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And even today, he remains probably the best known of all the Egyptian pharaohs. And this is all because of a discovery in the Valley of the Kings in November 1922, which was arguably the most significant archaeological discovery of the 20th century. And it was the result of the coming together of two very different men, Howard Carter and the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Now, Carter had been a professional archaeologist since his teens. He originally worked as an illustrator doing tomb excavations and uh, illustrating um, tomb decorations and hieroglyphs and such like. He'd worked in Egypt for a long time and he teamed up with Carnarvon in 1907. Carnarvon, unlike uh, Carter, who was came from a kind of lower middle-class background, Carnarvon was an English aristocrat with plenty of money to indulge in his two favorite pastimes, which were horse racing, and archaeology. He once said he would rather find an intact ancient Egyptian tomb than win the Derby. And in, in 1914, Carnarvon got permission from the Egyptian government to excavate in the Valley of the Kings, and he um, employed Carter to oversee the excavations. And of course, with the year being 1919, then it the work was held up by the outbreak of the First World War. But at the end of 1917, Carter was able to go to the Valley of Kings and start a, a, several seasons of digs, which turned out to be largely frustrating because nothing of any great interest was unearthed. And as the season for digging in 1922 approached, Carnarvon was basically getting fed up of throwing funds in the direction of Carter without any great results. Uh, and he was about to withdraw his funding, but Carter persuaded him to support one last go, and it turned out to be worth it. On November the 4th, one of Carter's workmen, actually a water carrier called Abdul Rasul, he stumbled across a stone which turned out to be the top of a flight of stairs leading downwards. And these stairs were dug out and part of a doorway was revealed. There didn't seem to be any evidence that tomb robbers had been there before Carter, which was the problem with nearly all the tombs that were 
uh, excavated was that they'd been stripped of their valuables by tomb robbers hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before. But these, it seemed as if it might be intact. And, and Carter was excited and convinced that he was on the verge of a magnificent discovery. So he sent a telegram to Carnarvon, who at the time was staying at his family seat, which is High Clear Castle, which is now famous because it was used as the family seat in Downton Abbey. And at first, Carnarvon doesn't seem to have been particularly thrilled. He sent a telegram back to Carter, just saying, possibly come soon, which suggests he wasn't all that uh, excited by the prospect. But he must have had second thoughts because he sent a second telegram saying he was on his way to Egypt immediately. So that in the last week of November, Carter and Carnarvon was standing before the last door between them and the inner tomb. And Carter made a small hole in this door and he peered through holding a candle. And Carnarvon, who was just behind him, asked, can you see anything? And Carter, according to the book that he later published, replied, yes, wonderful things. Uh, disappointingly, these may not have been his actual words. It may be a, a kind of myth that these were the actual words because Carter later wrote that Carter had said to him, there are certainly some marvellous objects here, which is not quite such a striking and resonant phrase. Uh, Carter's book, was, which was published a year or two later, was, was written with the assistance of a popular novelist of the day named Percy White, and it may well have been White who came up with the, the phrase, yes, wonderful things. Whoever did so, there were clearly a lot of remarkable finds in there. There were gilded couches, elaborately painted sarcophagi, golden throne, and eventually, of course, the famous golden mask of Tutankhamun, which is one of the most iconic items from the finds. And, Carter was to work at rescuing and cataloguing the contents of his discovery of the tomb for several years. And when the uh, announcement was made to the press at the end of November of what the Carter had found, then this was the trigger for what became known as Tootmania. I mean, in the next couple of years, and longer, in fact, there was a craze for all things Egyptian, and Tutankhamen was, was absolutely everywhere. Bands played Tutankhamen rags. Cartier produced Egyptian jewellery based on the finds. The Folie Berger staged the Tutankhamen Follies in Paris. There were all sorts of Tutankhamen items, Tutankhamen cigarettes, Tutankhamen hats, Tutankhamen parasols, anything that anybody thought that they could sell by uh, attaching the name Tutankhamen to it, and that's what there was. And also, more significantly in the long term, the newly emerging style of Art Deco in architecture and design was markedly influenced by the renewed interest in ancient Egypt there had been a period in the 19th century when discoveries in Egypt had had a, an impact on architecture and design. And now 
in the 1920s, the Art Deco was shaped very much by the this interest in ancient Egypt that Carter and Carter's discovery had, had uh, created. I mean, sadly, Carnarvon wasn't around to enjoy his triumph too long because he died in April 1923. And of course, there's all of the talk of the curse of Tutankhamun because other deaths of people involved in the dig supposedly followed, but uh, it's largely nonsense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so was the finds of, of Tutankhamun's tomb different different to previous excavations and digs because all of the treasure was still there? Yes, that was the significant thing, was that previous digs had found tombs which had largely been robbed of the treasures by grave robbers, tomb robbers, many years before. But in this instance, it was, although there were signs in that tomb robbers had been into Tutankhamun's tomb, they hadn't actually broken through to the main uh, inner tomb so that the treasures that had been put in there were preserved. Mm. So in that in that sense, Carter um, and his and his colleagues were the first people in in thousands and thousands of years to see inside that tomb. Yes, they were. Yeah, yeah, which is an extraordinary thought. I was wondering if we could speak a bit about how this moment relates to what was happening between Britain and Egypt in 1922. Otherwise, because um, earlier in the year, Britain had sort of given Egypt their independence is that that's correct well yes i mean in theory england or britain had never officially or egypt had never been officially part of the uh, of british rule but it was in effect i mean they'd established a protectorate over uh, egypt as far back as 1882 and i as i say although it was not formally part of the british empire it was in effect under british rule and the most powerful man in Egypt for more than 20 years had been Evelyn Baring, who was the British Consul General in, in Egypt. Uh, Baring had died in, uh, some, in the, during the First World War, in fact, 1917. But there were growing demands for Egyptian independence. These were spearheaded by a, a leader called Saad Zaglul, and there had been demonstrations in 1919, which were fairly brutally suppressed and protesters had been killed. But the government did realise that they needed, the British government did realise that they needed to give some kind of um, independence to, to uh, Egypt and uh, some kind of solution was necessary. And Viscount Allenby, who was the special high commissioner in Egypt, came up with a set of proposals to reach a compromise. And in February 1922, in other words, eight or nine months before um, Carter's discovery, uh, the government in London had accepted Allenby's proposal and Egypt was granted a kind of nominal independence. Uh, the British issued the unilateral declaration of Egypt, Egyptian independence in which it said that the protectorate was terminated and Egypt was declared to be an uh, uh, independent sovereign state. 
So yes, these, this came at a, a time when the uh, relationship between the British and the Egyptians was in a transitional period, shall we say, there were, there were difficult circumstances in, in difficult discussions and debates in Egypt at the time. I mean, even after this unilateral declaration of independence, then in reality, the ultimate reins of power were still in the hands of the British because they were retained the ability to intervene in Egyptian affairs if, if they felt that the interests of the British Empire were under threat or in any way. Um, and I mean, the most important thing was the continued control of the Suez Canal, which was vital to um, trade in the empire and communications and passage to India and what have you. Mm. I guess I was interested um, to ask you about it because I was wondering how it was received by Egyptians to have two British men find uh, this amazing treasure. Was that, do you know any, do you know how it was received by? I don't yeah. know for certain, but I would imagine it was uh, with those who wanted to, those Egyptians who wanted independence and a uh, proper independence rather than a nominal independence, then there was probably a certain amount of resentment about the fact that uh, Britons were coming in and digging up the nation's treasures. But I doubt if it was high on the, their list of priorities because their political priorities were more important at the time than their cultural priorities. Mm, yes, I just was interested to kind of talk a bit about that that political side to the to the um, archaeology archaeological digs that were happening in Egypt. I, I when I was researching for this interview, I was reading a really interesting um, piece uh, by Christina Riggs, who's um, a historian um, at Durham, I think actually. She was writing about how she felt like this um, idea of the West going and discovering parts of the um, so-called Orient was a myth to meet the needs of an empire which endures as empires fell. Um, which I thought was quite an interesting, it seemed to me that those two things were co like connected, that this was, at, you just talk in the book about how Britain's empire is both at its height in 1922, but it's also about to fall. To, yeah, there are all sorts of signs that it's not going to last forever, shall we say. And mm. uh, yeah, I can see how, as I say, it would be a matter of resentment that, that uh, for Egyptians that... But I, I think these issues, cultural issues, have perhaps come more to the fore in, in recent years than, than at the time, because their political priorities were, were more important to them. And, and I think uh, some of the material that was dug up by Western archaeologists did uh, end up in the museums in Cairo. So... It wasn't all, you know, exported to Europe, as it were. But uh, no, it would have been a cause of resentment. Mm. Well, a, a fantastic discovery either way. And like I say, I love the idea of us standing there um, in that tomb. <laughs> Flickering on the uh, golden objects inside. Yes, it's, it is quite a scene to imagine. So that leads us on really nicely to our second scene. Where would you like to go next in 1922? Well, I'd uh, go to Berlin on the morning of the 24th of June at about 10 in the morning. And at that time, 
uh, a six-seater car is parked in a side street off the Königsallee in Berlin's Grunewald, and its occupants are waiting for the country's foreign minister, Walter Rathenau, to pass by on his way to work in the centre of the city. And when Rathenau's open-top car drove past the end of the side street, the six-seater pulled out into the Königsallee and followed it. The six-seater then accelerated, overtook the foreign minister's vehicle, and as it did so, according to an eyewitness, a man leaned out of the window, holding a long pistol, the butt of which was resting in his armpit, and opened fire. A grenade was then thrown into Rattenau's car and exploded, although it did surprisingly little damage. However, Rattenau had been hit by five bullets. A nurse who happened to be passing by went to his assistance. He was still alive at that point, but he was, in her words, bleeding hard. His chauffeur, rather curiously in a way, drove to the nearest police station, which was only about 30 or 40 yards away, with Rattenau bleeding in the back of the car to report the attack. He then turned the car around and they returned to Rattenau's house. Uh, the injured man was then carried into his study and a doctor was called. But by the time the doctor arrived, the politician was dead. Uh, meanwhile, the assassin's car had broken down only a few hundred yards from the scene, from where they attacked Rattenau's car. Uh, the assassins all jumped out, threw their guns over a garden wall and pretended to be just ordinary motorists peering into their engine, which had malfunctioned. And as they were doing so, the police in pursuit, rather in sort of almost Keystone Cop style, drove past them so that they had the chance to catch them almost immediately, but failed to do so because they didn't realise that these people peering into the innards of their car were actually the assassins. Now, the assassin's victim, Walter Rattenau, was obviously a remarkable man. He seems to have impressed every, nearly everybody who met him with his intelligence and his insight. He was the son of a very wealthy businessman who'd had the foresight at the end of the 19th century to buy the European patents of the light bulb, which Thomas Edison had just invented. And therefore, Rattenau Sr. had made a fortune from it. Rattenau Jr., Walter, studied science at university, and then he followed in his father's footsteps as chairman of the family firm. But unusually for a millionaire businessman, he was, he was also sceptical of the long-term benefits of capitalism. And as he grew older, he only moved further to the left in his politics. He was one of the founders of the German Democratic Party in 1918, and he joined the government in 1921, first as Minister of Reconstruction in the aftermath of the war, and then as Foreign Minister. Um, allegedly, after he accepted the Foreign Minister's job, his mother, who was desperately concerned that politicians in Weimar Germany were in danger in such turbulent times, said to him, Walter, why have you done this to me? And he replied, I had to, Mama, because they couldn't find anyone else. But Rattenau's gifts 
uh, and his intelligence soon made him the most significant figure in the government of the day, which was headed by a gentleman called Viet, Joseph Viet. But Rattenau, as a Jew and a millionaire and a man with progressive ideas, he was also a very obvious and potential target for right-wing anti-Semitic terrorists. And in, in Weimar, Germany, there were plenty of those. So conspirators were soon plotting to kill him. And at the heart of the conspiracy were two men, Erwin Kern and Hermann Fischer. Both of them had fought in the war. Both of them had been unwilling to accept the fact of Germany's defeat and had blamed politicians. They were both subscribed to the so-called Dolkstoss legenda, the idea that the military had been stabbed in the back by treacherous and, and often Jewish politicians. Uh, both were members of the right-wing paramilitary groups known as the Freikorps. So after the assassination, after the killing in the Königsallee, Kern and Fischer needed to get out of Berlin. It was Kern who'd fired the shots, which had actually killed Rathenau. And their first idea was to head for a port on the Baltic and take a ship for Sweden. But this proved impossible because um, the, by that time, word of the assassination was out. It was difficult to uh, find a ship and the ports were being monitored as it were. Uh, so they were forced to adopt a less high-tech option of bicycles, and they ended up pedalling furiously southwards through the forests of northern Germany. But by this time, the, their identities were known. It was known that Kern and Fischer were the two principal assassins because one of their fellow conspirators had decided that he was, well, that he was more in favour of money rather than loyalty, and he'd accepted a financial reward from the authorities to betray them. So Kern and Fisher eventually took refuge, abandoned their bicycles. They took refuge in a deserted castle near the town of Naumburg. And they were spotted. It was realized who they were. And images of them had appeared in the press. Armed police arrived. And in the ensuing shootout, Kern was killed and Fisher then turned his gun on himself. Um, during the Nazi era, era the, the assassins were glorified as martyrs on the 11th anniversary of their deaths. There was a great parade to their graves and Himmler announced that, uh, quote, their spirit is the spirit of the SS. Although ironically, many of the surviving Rathenau conspiracies actually despised the Nazis. Just before Hitler came to power, one of them marched up to Goebbels, who was then the Gauleiter, the principal Nazi uh, leader in Berlin, and punched him, shouting, it wasn't for swine like you that we shot Rathenau. But uh, Walter Rathenau was only the most prominent of a number of politicians assassinated by right-wing opponents in 1922. It was a year of assassinations. Uh, yes, Vladimir Nabokov, who was the father of the novelist of the same name, the author of Lolita. Nabokov Sr. was living in exile in Berlin after the Russian Revolution. 
and he was shot and killed during a public meeting by two far-right anti-Semitic activists. Um, he wasn't even their intended target. He was bravely attempting to protect the social democrat politician who was their actual target. Uh, a former professor of engineering named Gabriel Naratovich was elected president of Poland in December. He was also Jewish. And five days, only five days after the election, he was attending an art exhibition when he was shot dead by a failed artist and anti-Semite and rabid right-wing nationalist. And earlier in the month, far back as February, the Finnish Minister of the Interior had been killed on his own doorstep by a right-wing assassin. So these were all indications of the turmoil of European politics in the aftermath of the First World War. And there were kind of portents of the violence to come so in a way, it's no surprise that at the same time in Bavaria, there was an obscure demagogue named Adolf, Adolf Hitler who was beginning to make his mark. He suffered a brief period of imprisonment after he and others physically attacked a political opponent. And he also made his first appearance in the English language press. In October, the New York Times published an article uh, on... Hitler, in which the journalists claimed that his anti-Semitism was, quote, not so genuine or violent as it sounded, and that he was using his anti-Semitism, these anti-Semitic attacks, as a means of gathering support. Well, how wrong did that journalist turn out to be? Mm. So as I say, the, the, it was a year of assassinations, and a very large number of them were anti-Semitic right-wing nationalists who were who were perpetrating them. Mm. Well, that was going to be my question: is why did you want to go to Ratzinger's assassination in in particular? Why why was it so significant? I think because it it did show quite clearly the enormous divisions within German society in the aftermath of the war and the difficulties that there were going to be in reconciling the people with such divergent opinions and beliefs. And it highlighted the problems that the Weimar government had right from the very start, you know, then eventually led to the, to the uh, rise of Hitler and Nazism. Although Rathenau isn't a particularly familiar name and, and figure in, in Britain, perhaps, then he was a very significant figure in German history and his death was a significant moment in German history. Yeah, and and in the book you describe very vividly about how the news of his assassination spread throughout Berlin and um, workers put down their tools to come out and, and mourn and protest it. There were significant, almost immediately in fact, as soon as the, as the assassination had taken place. That I think the assassins probably thought that there would be some outpouring of admiration for what they'd done but I mean that was absolutely not the case that uh, as news of Rattenau's murder percolated through the city then the killing was was seen not just as a personal tragedy but as a threat to the Weimar regime and hundreds of thousands of workers down tools to rally support and condemn the assassins so instead of 
uh, of being the heroes that they imagined. They became fugitives pursued through northern Germany and eventually surrounded and killed. And you also talk about, um, I, I was kind of desperate to ask you about this because you also describe how they news of the of the plot to assassinate him had reached the government um, before it happened. And uh, the chancellor um, has a conversation with Rathenau where he he informs him of it and he says, I think you should have greater police protection. But he and you write about you write about it very vividly, how he he kind of stares into the distance and then refuses. Um, yes, he um, I mean, Joseph Fiat, who was the. Um the head of the government, he had received word of a plot. He hadn't, I think it was a sort of vague uh, word rather than a specific, specific details of a plot, but he did a, approach Rathenau to tell him of the danger. And uh, according to Viet, then Rathenau stood silent for a long time and he seemed to be gazing on some distant land, as Viet put it. And... He eventually said, dear friend, it is nothing who would do me any harm, which, you know, he must have known was was wrong, that there were plenty of people out there who would do him harm. So it shows a courage and a determination to to stick to what he thought was his duty in government. Yeah, and like you've said, it's certainly, um, it's a, it's, Interesting how it kind of suggests what the violence that's to come later in um, later in the twentieth century. Hello, it's Artemis. For some time, we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd, and we've been telling you about his fascinating colorization work. Well, recently Jordan has launched his new project. It's a website called Unseen Histories, which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era, or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colorization work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at unseenhistories.com. Nick, would you like to tell us um, where we're going for our third and final scene in 1922? We're going back in time, I think. Um, January and March, the, the early months of the year, and we're going to Hollywood. I mean, in 1922, the cinema was, was already asserting itself, asserting its claim to be the most significant new art form of the, the century. In Britain, Alfred Hitchcock made his first film, probably made his first film at the end of 1922. In Germany, there were major directors like Fritz Lang and F.W. Murnau, who were at work. France and Italy were developing their film industries. Studios opened in Japan, and the first films from what would later be called Bollywood was reaching the screen in India. In middle America, there were interesting developments. In 1922, young animators, two young animators in Kansas City established their first company, which was called Laughagram Pictures. And one of those two young animators was Walt Disney. But already by 1922, American cinema really meant Hollywood, even though Hollywood, in, in the sense that we understand it, had only really been in existence for about a decade. So 1922 in Hollywood saw movies starring names that still 
have some sort of familiarity like Rudolph Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks. Fairbanks appeared in a film called Robin Hood, which about the English outlaw, which was one of the most expensive films ever made. There were ambitious directors like Eric von Stroheim and Cecil B. DeMille were at work. The silent comedians such as Chaplin and Keaton were in their prime. Um, so Hollywood was buzzing at the time, but the Hollywood film industry was also beginning to be seen as a hotbed of decadence and sin filled with drink and drugs and illicit sex. And I'm sure in many ways it was exactly that. There was a lot of boozing, a lot of drug taking, a lot of beautiful young people jumping into bed with one another. But much of the more potentially shocking behaviour was being kept under wraps by the studios that the uh, studios controlled what went out to the press. But in 1922, Hollywood was struck by two major scandals. One of them was a murder. In February, uh, the director, William Desmond Taylor, was killed. Uh, his body was found in, in his bungalow in uh, Los Angeles. And there was this strange scene where a crowd gathered and, and a doctor came forward, or a man who claimed to be a doctor came forward, examined the body and said that uh, Taylor had died of a stomach hemorrhage. And this chap's medical credentials were almost immediately called into question because at that point the body was discovered it was discovered that Taylor had actually been shot in the back and this supposed doctor had disappeared completely that's a strange part of the story which has never been explained along with a number of other things in the story which have never been explained properly but the suspects uh, included well, most sensationally, they included a former child star, Mary Miles Minter, who was rumoured to have possibly had an affair with Taylor, and her mother, who was also possibly having an affair with Taylor. And the last person to see him alive was Mabel Normand, who was a big name in those days. She was Charlie Chaplin's co-star in many of his early movies. So it was a big scandal in February, and, and Taylor's killer was never found. But... The second story, which shed light on the seedy side of Hollywood life, involved um, Roscoe Arbuckle, known as Fatty Arbuckle. He, he was a popular and very much loved comedian. And in the previous year, 1921, Arbuckle and friends had thrown a party. It, it hadn't been in Hollywood. It hadn't even been in Los Angeles. It was in a private suite at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco that Quite often, Hollywood figures to escape any kind of publicity would drive up to San Francisco to, to I say, avoid the cameras and the press. Uh, and among the guests at uh, Arbuckle's party was a young woman named Virginia Rapper, who had worked as a model and had had a few minor roles in, in movies. And... There were conflicting reports immediately about what happened to Rapper there at the St. Francis Hotel. It's difficult to um, pick out the certainties from the story, but as booze flowed, she certainly became ill and distressed. And a hotel doctor was called who decided she was suffering from nothing more than severe intoxication. But he 
proved badly wrong because two days after the party, by which time Harbuckle and his pals had all gone back to Los Angeles, Rapper was admitted to hospital and she died there from a ruptured bladder and peritonitis. And then, according to a friend who'd also been at the party, a woman called Maud Delmont, Rapper had been the victim of an appalling sexual assault by Arbuckle, who had pulled her into a bedroom and locked the door. And Delmont had hammered at the door and, and eventually Arbuckle had opened it and Delmont had found her friend lying moaning and in terrible pain. Now, Arbuckle immediately denied this. You know, he, he said he'd drunk with Rapper, he, he, but he'd never been alone with her. And he'd certainly not assaulted her, and others could confirm that he'd never been alone with her. He knew she'd taken, been taken ill, but like the doctor, he'd assumed it was the result of too much alcohol. Uh, now, when Delmont's story appeared, the tabloid press went to town on it, hinting and, and more than hinting that ever more lurid uh, examples of sexual depravity. Um, Arbuckle returned voluntarily to San Francisco to face trial in November 1921 on a charge of manslaughter. He was accused of causing Rapper's death by rupturing the, her bladder during a sexual assault. At that first trial in November 1921, the jury divided 10 to two in favor of acquittal, but it needed to be unanimous and a mistrial was declared. So at the beginning of January, January 11th, I think, a second trial was undertaken, which ended with a nine to three verdict in favour of his guilt rather than his innocence. And again, a mistrial was declared because, as I say, the decision had to be unanimous. Um, so Arbuckle's third trial began on 13th of March, and by this time, his defence had much stronger evidence of Maud Delmont's past, and uh, Delmont being the principal witness for the prosecution. And she had a track record as a blackmailer. Now, an another prosecution witness admitted that she'd lied at the earlier trial, uh, yet another one turned out to be facing his own criminal charges of assaulting an eight-year-old girl. So this time, the jury took only 12 minutes, 10 minutes, sorry, to declare Arbuckle not guilty. And uh, it was a unanimous verdict. And after the verdict, the 12 members of the jury all lined, lined up to shake Arbuckle by the hand. And they were clearly of the belief that he'd been wrongfully accused. But with the newspapers filled with stories of you know, orgies in Hollywood, his career was as good as over. I mean, in, in the future, he was hired by Buster Keaton, who was a friend of his, to write a few comedies under a pseudonym. Um, and he even directed a handful of movies for smaller studios, but he never regained his place in the Hollywood elite. And he died in June 1933 at the age of 46. Um, one actress who worked with him after the scandal said he had been very nice and sweetly dead since the scandal. So, I mean, the Fatty Arbuckle scandal was a tragedy for all of those involved. It was, you know, a young woman died in terrible circumstances. Much loved comedian saw his career go down the drain. But it also had wider repercussions, which were to last for some time. 
because of the furore and the yellow press revelations which surrounded Virginia Rapper's death and also the murder of William Desmond Taylor, the big Hollywood studios realised they needed to do something to clean up their act. And leading producers came together to create um, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, this formed later in 1922. And they appointed a man called Will Hayes, who'd worked for the president, uh, Warren Harding. And Hayes was a kind of fierce moralist, one a puritanical figure. And according to one writer, he was also a man of exemplary dullness. But this Hayes was appointed first chair of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. And over the next decade, the so-called Hayes office uh, exercised increasing control over what was and was not acceptable on the screen. Finally, in 1934, the Production Code Administration, as it was known, came into being to enforce soft and rigid regulations about what the films could deal with. All, all movies had to gain the PCA's approval before they could be shown publicly. Uh, and that code lasted until the 1960s, by which time it was obviously becoming un unenforceable. So those two scandals in 1922 affected the way in which films were made for the next 40 years. And I was interested to know um, to what extent they they affected not just um, what films were being made, but did it did they have any effect on actually changing the culture in Hollywood? Because it was obviously they were sort of created as a way of um, pushing back against what the press were writing about how how seedy Hollywood was. But did it continue to be <laughs> as as seedy as ever? It was much the same, but the producers and the studios had regained control over the way in which mm. the activities of their uh, stars were, were seen in the press. I mean, I think there was still a Hollywood Babylon, as it were, in the 19, later 1920s and 1930s, but the studios had found better means of controlling the press and making sure that the more extravagant activities of their stars didn't reach the public. Hmm. And did I was wondering whether the the real reason for Virginia's death death ever was ever explained or ever came to light if it was decided that it wasn't Fatty Arbuckle then what had happened to her? I don't night? think it ever was in the same way that the, I mean lots of opinions obviously and lots of books have been published arguing one thing or another but I don't think there's a definitive explanation of of, of the events I mean the the one inescapable and very sad fact is that she did die of the ruptured bladder and that it was whatever had happened had happened at the party. But I don't think it was, I think the, the decision by the jury in the third trial was, was correct. There simply wasn't the evidence that Arbuckle was guilty. Uh, I mean, he was treated as if he was guilty in some ways, but there's not the definitive evidence to prove that it was him, nor any definitive evidence to indicate what the true story was. Mm. I think, you know, books will no doubt appear arguing one thing or another for the foreseeable future. Mm. 
It, yes, it's it's such a sad story and you can't help but think of all of the um, young people and perhaps women in particular who have who have um, suffered and been exploited in Hollywood, um, you know, from, from, from its inception. I mean, yes, certainly in the 1920s and 30s, it must have been, you know, young women from all over America flooding to Hollywood in the hopes of becoming stars. They were open for exploitation in all sorts of ways. Mm. Well, Nick, thank you for taking us through um, those three fascinating scenes from 1922. We've got a real, a real spread there of um, from the kind of magnificent and wonderful with Tutankhamun to the tragic um, with the assassinations and, and the murder. Um, but before we head back into the present, you're allowed to bring with you one memento from 1922. So would you like to tell our listeners what memento you'd like to bring? I think what I would do, I said earlier that my first interest in 1922 was from a literary point of view. So I would travel back to Paris in February 1922. I'd visit Sylvia Beach's bookshop, Shakespeare and Co. And I'd try to get my hands on a first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses. And partly this would be for mercenary reasons because a pristine copy of the first edition recently sold for 275,000 pounds but the 1922 was the peak year for literary modernism in, in october eliot's poem the wasteland probably the most influential poem of english poem of the century was published in the criterion the literary magazine edited by the poet himself and ulysses was arguably the most significant novel of the century. Joyce had been working on it for years. Excerpts had already appeared in magazines. But Joyce was almost superstitiously obsessed with the significance of dates, and he wanted the full work to be published on February the 2nd, 1922, 2 22 And that also happened to be his 40th birthday. But getting the manuscript ready for publication was a major task. As, as you know, Joyce's prose and style are complicated. And in addition, his, his handwriting was often indecipherable and the pages of the manuscript were peppered with crossings out and additions scribbled in the margin. It was an absolute nightmare for typists. One threatened suicide if forced to continue with the task and another typist just rang the bell at Joyce's apartment, dumped the manuscript on the doorstep and ran away. But eventually it was published by Sylvia Beach, um, the owner of the bookshop Shakespeare & Co., in an edition of a 1,000 copies, and Joyce was able to celebrate both his birthday and the publication date with a dinner for friends in his favoured uh, Parisian restaurant. Uh, even then, there were only two copies in the French capital, one in the window of Sylvia Beach's bookshop and one under Joyce's chair in the restaurant. The other 998 were still all in the printers, at the printers in Dijon. And, I mean, when the book reached a slightly wider readership later in the year, many people were outraged by it. One critic wrote that it was the work of, quote, a perverted lunatic who's made a specialty of the literature of the latrine. And uh, Virginia Woolf, who might have been expected to be a bit more sympathetic to it, famously described it as the work of a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. Not entirely sure what that means. But there were also those who appreciated its genius, although it was difficult to get hold of for many years because it was banned in, in 
Britain and the USA because of alleged obscenity. As I say, if I if I was able to go back and and uh, those 998 copies had reached Sylvia Beach's bookshop, then I would pick uh, the Ulysses first edition, and perhaps if Joyce was in the uh, in the shop, I could even get him to sign it. Mm, I love that. I was going to ask actually if you wanted the copy that he um, took with him to the restaurant. Kind of I think he'd have probably hung on to that one. The dear life. <laughs> well, that's wonderful, and it gives us a, t- a taste of um, some of the kind of um, artistic and literary achievements of 1922 that you, you talk about in your book. So I encourage listeners to go and buy it and read it, so they can find out more about um, more about that. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Nick Renison. His book, 1922, Scenes from a Turbulent Year, is available to buy now and is published by Old Castle Books. As ever, do head over to our website to find out more information about this episode and any of our others. Thanks so much for listening and Happy New Year!